0: batteries are back on the menu. The first episode of Table Talk focused on large batteries that are going to be installed on El Paso Street. Those batteries brought a lot of rather interesting concerns to a city council meeting in check. But the project is still going forward. Hi, I'm Manny Gomez and this is Table Talk, a podcast about our hometown of La Mesa. Today we're going to talk to two of the people responsible for installing those batteries in our neighborhood. James Beach managing partner of Entersmart, and Skylar Tennis, vice president of operations. Thanks so much for joining us, James and Skylar. How you doing? Great. Thank you for having us. Happy to be a part of it. Yeah, anytime. Our pleasure. First, tell me a little about the company, Entersmart. Who are you and what do you do?
1: Yeah, so we're a project development company that develops utility-scale battery storage projects. We develop them, permit them, own them, and, and ultimately operate them throughout San Diego County. How did you get started, and what are the long-term visions for the company? Yeah, we, we got started. We started up about four years ago, basically just saw that the costs of battery storage were declining, and the market really for installing the meter battery storage projects was really opening up for the first time. And so we created the company to take advantage of those opportunities. We came to San Diego because it has some of the highest power prices in the U.S. and a lot of price volatility due to transmission constraints. And so that was the logical market for us. We we created our company and formed it here in California and set up shop in Solana Beach. And uh, yeah, our long-term visions are after San Diego, we'll probably do uh, similar projects in PG&E territory and other markets throughout the U.S. Now, we talked about this in the first episode, but it's a good time to
0: review. What's the point of having a bunch of large batteries in our neighborhood?
1: They serve two purposes, really, and they're both to enable the growth of renewable energy, wind and solar projects. So in a nutshell, there are sort of two functions. One is that as the supply of power from wind and solar grows, the supply of power becomes less dependable because it's dependent on weather. And because of that, you need battery storage projects installed to be able to take power off the lines quickly or put power back on the line quickly to keep the voltage frequency stable and if that doesn't happen then the power lines can trip and you have a blackout so in a nutshell what it's doing is when weather is dictating the supply of power if the wind suddenly stops blowing or there's a cloud cover and that supply drops if they don't have a resource that can put power on the line quickly to make up for that then you would have a blackout so that's one of the primary purposes of battery storage the other is basically just what's called load shifting so it's the charge basically charge the batteries when there's too much supply on the line and not enough demand, basically, mostly in the middle of the night or you know, summertime in the middle of the day when there's a lot of solar power. Uh, we can charge that power and then release it other periods, particularly in afternoons when the sun starts going down and people are coming home from work and turning on their air conditioning and their ovens and their TV sets, et cetera. When demand goes way up in the afternoon and supply goes down, then we can release that power. So it shifts that load. The overall goal of batteries is really to make the power prices more stable and lower.
0: My understanding is that this would help when I come home and turn on my air, computer, and TV along with everyone else. This will make it less likely that the power companies will have to buy more expensive electricity from out of town or have blackouts.
1: Is that right? Yeah, you're getting it mostly right. There's sort of two different things the blackouts are different. That's just. Basically, the transmission lines they have to stay within a certain frequency. And if you put too much, if there's too much supply, there's not a balance of supply and demand, then it trips the wires basically, and and it creates a blackout. The other issue is basically just trying to lower that cost of power in the afternoon, and we can do that by storing power when it's cheap and releasing it when it's expensive. So it's basically putting more supply on the line when the system really needs it, and taking it off the lines when the system doesn't. To overall goal is to lower and stabilize the price of power.
2: And just to add to that too, a lot of times with the amount of solar that California has right now, that the peak production times, some of that solar power is actually be exporting to other states. So it kind of comes with what James was saying, it sometimes we'll also charge whenever it's needed so that that power doesn't have to go to other states. We can store that renewable energy and we can discharge it later when it's needed. As a reminder, this site is on a small lot on El
0: Paso, just west of Lake Murray Boulevard. It's behind the Rosarito's Mexican food and directly across the street from an SDG&E electrical substation. We saw that there's a fancier sign on a the lot there, but it doesn't look like construction has begun yet. Where are you in the process and when do you expect these to be online?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was, um, that was actually our sign that we put on there. So the original one that was being complained about was the city's notification and the, the one that we've... Posted here recently was one that we posted up there with our PR firm, uh, Right On, to kind of give everybody a phone number to call or an email to reach out to them if they had any questions. Uh, as far as where we're at, uh, we just had our design review board meeting this Tuesday with La Mesa. It went well. We had one person show up with a little bit of opposition, um, but it was all pretty typical stuff. You know, uh, it, they're worried about sound, they're worried about fires, they're worried about property values going down. Besides that, the design review board meeting went fairly well. They want us to beautify the 20-foot retaining wall that we've got. That's kind of going back into that hill that's there right now and going towards those residential areas. But besides that, that was all they had. So we're going to be updating that. We should be on the next design review board meeting in September to get approval there. And concurrently, and that would be for our site plan approval. Concurrently, we're doing the building and grading permits middle, which. ideally we could get done in about four months but knowing how the cities work it will probably take a little closer to six months before we can actually put a shovel in the ground one of the big concerns that was brought
0: up was around the potential dangers of batteries Um, lithium ion batteries are prone to catching on fire but these aren't lithium ion batteries can you talk about what they are and how their
2: safety compares with other batteries yeah, so it's, it's a LFP, lithium iron phosphate. So it's still a, a type of lithium ion battery, but definitely not as volatile. While there are still fire risks and there's, there's safety systems in place, if there ever was, the LFP is dramatically lower as far as the, the fire risk. They don't combust anywhere near as, as low of a temperature. So again, just a, a safer technology. This is the same technology they're using in the local school buses that they're now electrifying and uh, all the EVs as well. And I mean, there, there is risk, right? There's 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 always going to be risk. But there's redundant systems in these that are backed up by UPS power that will exhaust the gases that can build up in these systems and cause explosions. So if there ever was an event, they would start to exhaust that to where the, those gases can't build up in the container at all, which prevents an explosion from occurring. So they are safer. Well, they do still have fire risk. There are redone systems in place to keep them safe. So, in layman's terms, if there's a fire, talk about what will happen next. Yeah, absolutely. So these are all tested UL ninety five forty, so they ha- they have to have certain mitigation mechanisms in place. So if there is a fire, we have the smoke detectors, there's heat detectors, there's flame detectors. Those will sense what's going on. They'll immediately kick up the exhaust fans that will then vent off any gases that could build up in there and again, potentially cause an explosion. So that's the first step is off finning There's also safety mechanisms in each one that open up each contactor or each individual circuit uh, connection to where each one of those modules is now isolated. And per the 9540 listing, once those mechanisms uh, are enacted, the fire does not propagate from module to module. So even within an individual container it will put itself out, and I think a lot of the misconception with these two is that, you know, when these things catch on fire, or if they catch on fire, that it's going to be some large flame that's just emitting out of out of the container, and that's just not true. I don't know if you've ever seen anything electronic or anything catch on fire because of overheating, but it's 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 a lot of smoke, it's a little flame, and then like I said, with with the safety features in place, it does not allow it to propagate to the next module so it it basically snuffs itself out for lack of a better phrase
0: so it sounds like this isn't something that you're just kind of throwing haphazardly together but it's been put together tested retested and kind of finalized as this is the safest we can get it this is as safe as it as you can be so it sounds
2: sounds pretty safe to me Um, they actually catch them on fire they put a I can send you, I'm happy to send you that 9540 document of the testing. It would actually be a lot of fun to be involved in the testing, uh, to be honest. But they, yeah, they'll put a heat gun on each module. They'll heat it up to a ridiculous amount to where it does catch fire. And then they just sit there and let all the systems operate as designed and document when it goes out. A pretty interesting report. Yeah. So it sounds
0: like exactly what needs to be done is getting done to ensure the highest safety factor possible. Absolutely. So another thing was noise was a big concern. An independent noise study concluded that the noise level would be approximately 60 decibels during the day and 50 decibels at night. But for the normal
2: person, what does that actually mean? How loud will this actually be? So these, these all have fans, they have cooling fans, the inverters have cooling fans as well. And when these are operating at full capacity, they will turn on. When they're all running and you've got a lot of those batteries together, it also amplifies that. So they take all that into consideration with the sound study, but as designed, the way we've got it at the property line is a decibel level that's comparable to a refrigerator running in the background. If you were having a conversation with somebody in your kitchen. Okay, at at the property line, so
0: beyond the property line, that decibel level would potentially drop lower than that once you're beyond the parameters of this area. Are there any other battery sites like these that are up and running? Would you mind telling
1: us where those are? Yeah, there's a couple in Otay Mesa called Gateway. There's another one that's planned for just south of downtown that TerraGen's installing. I'm not sure what the status is on that, but I think they've broken ground on it. And then there's one in Fallbrook. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Those are ones local here, too. There are a multitude of them all over the state.
1: Yeah. There's now no... was there was there any
0: resistance in these areas similar to what? And by resistance, I'm just meaning you know outcry from the public in those areas that may have kind of abated based on what's going on now.
1: Yeah, I don't. I'm not aware of really any opposition either during permitting or during operations. And we actually encourage folks. There's another one that's owned by sdg It's in Encinitas. They have a huge substation there with a, what was it, when it was built, it was the largest battery storage project in the world at the time it was built. Wow. Well, and we encourage folks to go there. You can get close to it and listen, and you can't hear any noise from it. And it's, it's huge. It's 10 times larger than the one we'll be installing it. Oh,
0: so. well, that's good to know. Yeah, that'd be awesome to go and check out and just, you know, get some personal feedback of how loud it is and yeah, close in proximity it is to the surrounding areas and, imagining that it's it's not you know next to the beach, but it's close enough to that area that if it was a, at least environmental issue, they wouldn't have allowed that to be built there. Uh, um, so I'm sure it's passed all of those guidelines. Now, as far as the funding on this work, um, who is exactly paying for this? Enterspart pays for 100% of the cost Of the installation and the upkeep?
1: Yep, and the equipment, everything that we pay, every every cent. And our customer is the California independent system operator called Kaiso and and basically what we do is 90%, 95% of the time we turn over control of battery to them for that frequency control that we were discussing earlier. So they can get a battery to take power, you know, put power, take it off the line quickly when they need it. And they pay us an hourly rate for that based on whatever the market price is at that given point in time. And then we also earn revenues basically from charging when power is cheap and then selling it when it's more expensive.
0: So it's kind of an ad hoc system that you build and just you gain your investment back as the power is used and now as, as the system kicks into use.
1: Yeah, from those two revenue sources, exactly.
0: Okay So this battery site is not unique in California. Can you talk about the bigger picture and what the vision is for the future of our state as far as potentially expanding into other areas and providing additional at least support for our energy system?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's a great question. So California as you know, has a 100% renewable goal by 2045. Without battery storage, it, it would be impossible to do that for the two reasons um, that we discussed earlier on, basically, you have to have that frequency control and you have to have an asset that can take power off off the line and put it on the line immediately. And batteries uniquely qualified to do that. And then secondly, if if you're going to have to deliver power in the middle of the night, for example, without batteries, you can't do that. We have a, a, you know, a little saying we say sometimes to the business of battery storage is for power, what refrigeration was for food. And before refrigeration, you either ate the food or you threw it away. There was no way to store it. It was, you use it or lose it and it. It's the same thing with renewable power. So much renewable power is wasted because it can't be stored. And so the growth of batteries is way behind the growth of wind and solar. So it'll eventually catch up and then it'll it'll keep getting billed out all the way through 2045 and beyond to make sure that the state can get to its 1% goal. And my view is California really just does lead the entire country and, and really the world in showing people how to do it right. And California is doing it right. As tough as it is to be a rate paper payer here, um, the state really is doing everything right to try to get to a system where it's 100% renewable, clean, and at some point in time in the next 20 years, it's going to be fairly inexpensive power. It's hard to get there, but the, the state's doing everything going in the right direction to make that happen. When I mentioned the system operator, CAISO, to go onto their website and you can look at power source and if you look at the supply of power in the middle of the day most days, it's above seventy five percent renewable and a lot of times it's a hundred. And to see that is just incredible. That progress that's happened since just twenty twenty five that the state is delivering in the afternoon a hundred percent of its supply from renewable sources. That's amazing. And it and it's just gonna keep improving and it's gonna get to that we'll get to that level. It might not be hundred percent and it might be two percent that has to be back up to make sure for certain situations but it's going to get pretty darn close and it's uh, it's pretty cool to be part of that movement and to see it happen
0: yeah it's awesome um and can you talk uh more about what it means to to get it right what what makes california's power system different from surrounding areas and areas throughout the country what what is above those other areas
1: no, it's a great that's a great question. It's been really it started in the late nineties when the state decided to deregulate and everybody remembers that. It went through it. It was difficult at first when the generation was separated from transmission and unfortunately had Enron and other guys playing games that caused a lot of problems back in two thousand. But you know, that that got sorted out. So the power gear is not regulated. It's market based, which is a, a big improvement over a lot of states. You know, I'm from Colorado. There it's one utility with some co-ops, it's regulated by the Public Utility Commission, but the power is not market-based. It is what it, you know, what it costs to excel, to to build the power stations and to deliver it. Here, it's all market-based. And so you get a lot of companies like NSMart that can come in and participate in a wholesale market. That was the first step. And then the second one was just mandating in, you around 2005 and, and, and beyond that, that, They had to find a way to make renewable power work. And a lot of people oppose that and say, it can be expensive. And why are we doing this? And to be honest, I mean, my background, I've been in this business since the nineties with uh, developing and raising financing for gas fired plants. And I thought when I first came out, ah, that's, that's just crazy. You know, it's going to be like what it was in the seventies. And there was a solar movement for a while, but it was too expensive and it just didn't work. But it started. The state started this 2005, and as it progressed and came up with renewable goals that people thought would never be achievable, it's happening. You know, they do this, and it's tough, and there's a lot of opposition. But the state did the right things, and it's it's moving exactly in that direction, which people didn't really think was possible, including myself 15 years ago. But now, I, now I see it happening in front of me, and I say to be part of the the solution is pretty neat and makes our job that much more worthwhile.
0: Okay, um, let's let's dig a little bit deeper into that deregulation and talk about why you prefer that. Because there are some states like like Texas where deregulation, you know, didn't work out so well for them, and and they they suffered because of that when they had that huge winter storm that killed people because they weren't prepared for it. They didn't have the energy for it. What are the benefits of deregulation, um, and mm-hmm. what kind of onus does that put on? You know, contractors as as yourself and companies that are doing these types of installations.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure in that crisis in ERCOT whether or not you know a regulated system would have come out any better than a deregulated system. But what I see is just you know it's it's supply and demand. It's based on here. It's a wholesale market. It's supply and demand. Anybody can come in and enter the market and build a plant if it makes sense, economic sense, and they have the money to do it. Versus a you know regulated market where to be honest, the utility doesn't really care what they pay. They get a return on, on their investment, a fixed return on their investment, and they actually, a regulated market utility can be incentivized to have a project that's as expensive as possible. And so here it's market-based. So if the, if the utility is coming in with something that's too expensive, then you have the ability to, to come out, not in all cases, but in a lot of the cases you can come out and we can build it on our own for less, and the Public Utility Commission sees that and allows us to, to do something that makes more sense for the rate payer versus a, a regulated market where they don't have that competition and that that requirement or that need to to come up with the most economically efficient system or plan.
2: So just to add to that a little bit too, I mean, the, the deregulation in Texas now, I mean, the, the battery storage is booming there almost just as much as it is here in California. And they're looking at battery storage to solve that problem that caused the deaths of people because of of the extreme cold. Because it's deregulated, they're able to put in the battery storage and fix the issue that caused that makes sense. Um yeah, and I think deregulation, you know, it's kind of a
0: trigger word for people. Anytime you hear that, you immediately go, "Oh, no. That's never good." But I guess, you know, as long as you have contractors and builders who take it upon themselves to do quality work and, and do quality installations and make sure that they are meeting the standards that are set for the industries, that kind of eliminates that uh that problem. So, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And you still have, you still have regulatory bodies. You still have the public utility commission. You still have what's called FERC to oversee these things. And so it's not like sort of a free for all, but what it does is, you know, allows the rate payer to get the best deal yep, really in that market to competition.
0: And that's what we want. So uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today, James and
1: Spiler. Any final
0: words for our listeners?
1: i know thanks for your support and appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk about our projects and our company
0: sure yeah we're more than happy to do that well that's it for this episode andy Trimlett and josh crimson produced this podcast and big thanks to jordan crimson for composing our theme song thanks for listening to table talk